Hey, welcome. Glad you're here today. My name is Russell. I'm the pastor here at Reunion. And as we get started today, uh, let's pray. God, I love you. And uh, I thank you for this, this time that we get uh, to explore these ideas about our values, about um, what a faithful expression of uh, Christianity looks like and um, the deep impact that it could have in our city, in our world, and I pray that we'd be faithful to that as we talk about this idea of covenant uh, community today. And so would you be with us in this time? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I actually want to begin today with an image. Uh, this is a Banksy. Uh, it's called Mobile Lovers. It uh, resides uh, on a doorway in Bristol in the UK, and I think this work is a pretty good social commentary on modern relationships. Uh, two people embracing one another intimately, but then looking past each other with a glowing light on their face from their phones. And we could say a lot here, right? Missing what's in front of us, endlessly connected, but never present. I love you, I'm committed to you, but I largely look past you. Or maybe you looked at this and you thought the same thing I did, which is just like guilty, right? <laughs> And what I want to put forth today is that our culture is in desperate need of relationships where people are committed, where there is depth, and where people stick it out, this idea of covenant community. And the biblical vision for community is, is quite different than that of our current cultural moment. And that's actually what we need to get to before we get into our passage today is the tension or the separation um, that we have culturally um, today from the uh, first century Mediterranean world. Because in the New Testament world, these first followers of Jesus lived in a distinctly strong group culture. And so in the ancient world, the health of the group superseded the needs and the desires of the individual. And so life was seen through the lens of the group, the uh, social roles, the working together, and quite literally in an agrarian society, uh, the future was on the line for the group. Uh, one scholar I was reading uh, made note of Paul's language around um, um, the plural in uh, his writings. Uh, one of the ways that he looked at was the uh, Paul's usage of the word Lord and the um, precursors attached to it, my or our, uh, my being personal, possessive, like individual, and then um, our being communal and relational. And as you can guess in Paul's writing, he uses uh, my Lord one time and he uses our Lord 53 times. Uh, another interesting way that I saw uh, someone look at uh, group culture is how Jesus taught his disciples or his followers um, to pray, right? We pray the Lord's Prayer by saying, our Lord, right? And the group culture is clear. Uh, a Cyprian of Carthage, an early church bishop, wrote this. Before all things, the teacher of peace and master of unity did not wish prayer to be offered individually and privately as one would pray only for himself when he prays. We do not say, my Father who art in heaven, nor give me this day my bread, nor does each one ask that only his debt be forgiven him, and that he be led not into temptation, and that he be delivered from evil for himself alone. Our prayer is public and common, and when we pray, we pray not for one, but for the whole people, because we, the whole people, are one. And as we get into the New Testament, one of the pictures of the church is that of a body or a family, a group, right? 
and against this idea of group culture is uh, a strong group culture is obviously weak group culture, right? Or what we might call today this idea of radical individualism. We live in a weak group culture where the needs and the wants and the desires of the individual take priority over the groups or the institution. And one caveat today, um, COVID this last year has driven um, driven up our uh, ideas of individualism. But one caveat here is it's also driven us to a social isolation. And so, yes, I do want to challenge us uh, in our individualistic thinking and nature, but I do want to be gracious towards us as many of us have been driven to further individualism in our isolation. So I do want to be sensitive um, towards that. But this idea of radical individualism uh, remains. Ross Douthat uh, wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times a number of years ago called The Age of Individualism. He says this, in the future, it seems there will be only one ism, individualism, and its rule will never end. As for religion, it shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. And I love this. Only pot, selfies, and Facebook will abide. And the greatest of these will probably be Facebook. And his article was catching. I didn't uh, agree with all parts of it, but one of the things that he highlighted um, and elevated so well was a culture of hyper-individualism that we live in, that we've elevated the individual. We've said, maybe not verbally, but we've said culturally that our own happiness and our own rights are the paramount ideal in our culture. And so what we actually begin uh, need to begin to evaluate is if the highest value in our culture is the individual, then we ask, what happens when we enter into relationships, a dating relationship, a friendship? If the highest value in our culture is the individual, what happens then when we enter a relationship in a community? Because oftentimes, even unknowingly, we are essentially saying, I'm in this as long as my needs are met. I'm in this as long as I feel included. I'm in this uh, to the degree that I feel that you are meeting your end of the deal. And so when it comes to dating relationships or friendships and e even family to some extent or even larger community, we want the relationship. We want the connection. We want the inclusion. We want that feeling. But oftentimes we shun the obligation that comes with relationship. I was thinking this week of uh, how I left home uh, at 18 for college and I haven't returned. I have gone back to visit but never to stay, right? The American way of, paint, uh, of parenting, uh, right or, or wrong, the, the goal is to raise a child that is relationally, emotionally, and financially independent of the family, right? We're go, we go off to, to college or, or to work to fulfill our own dreams or our own agenda. And so Americans have actually been socialized to believe that our own dreams, our own goals, and our own personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over that of the group. And here's where uh, this First Peter 2 passage that Will read is really helpful in speaking into um, the communal identity of those who call themselves Jesus followers are. This letter was written to a, a group of um, early followers of Jesus um, scattered out uh, throughout the ancient world around modern day Turkey, and they've been dispersed. And Peter's communicating to them 
what it means to be God's people, what some of their ethical practices should be, um, even though they're dispersed throughout um, the ancient world. And this is what he says to them in verse 9, really the focal point of this passage here. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's incredible um, what Peter is beginning to communicate about their identity, but it's even more incredible because of their situation. Uh, Part of what Will read was um, in verse 1. And so here in verses 9 and 10, Peter's like, this is who you are in Jesus. This is who you are as a group. But in verse 1, he's telling them, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. And so Paul is, uh, Peter is, 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 is telling the audience of his letter that they're, they're struggling to get the ethics of this right. You're, you're deceitful, you're, you're, you're hypocritical, you're, you're jealous of one another. And to this messed up group of people, Peter says, but actually this is who you are. You are God's people. And he doesn't, he doesn't write to them and say like, he, he points out their behavior, but he's not like, here's how to fix it. Rather, he's saying, here's your identity. I'm going to put your communal identity in front of you. And I want you to live into the reality of that, to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Like in a communal way, not just like individual, individually like fix what's going on in your life, but rather remember that you're not just alone, but that you, even though scattered, are a group of people whom God loves. And he says these four things, and I'll just walk through them quickly here. He says you're a chosen race. And I think this would have stuck out to the people um, that were recipients of the letter that were scattered about modern day Turkey. Um, they have experienced what a lot of us have experienced, the social rejection um, pushed to the margins of society. And I think it's actually quite easy um, here to, to, shame, to shame us with this text and to say you know, to you as you're listening, like you're, you're, you, know, you only evaluate and think about yourself. Um, you only see through your, your lens. And I do want to push on us and, and, and challenge us but is that going to change us? If, if you just hear some like pastor guy, like you just need to get into community with other people, think about other people first. Like it's, it's not going to work, right? Rather, Peter says, you, you've been chosen. You're a chosen people. God pursued you and chose you. And then a note, a, a note here that's really important is it, it says that it's a chosen race. Or, um, and so th- you might be saying, well, does that mean um, one race is chosen to the exclusion of others? And it's actually quite the antithesis as we take in the whole of the New Testament. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the, one of the things that um, we find out in Galatians is that the dividing wall of hostility was torn down, bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And so when we're united in the, in the person and the work of Jesus, the, the people of God are actually a multi-ethnic people. And so we are chosen people. He continues by saying, you are a royal priesthood. And um, that, that's a, you know, t- kind of a, a, a big idea to, to put our mind around. It sounds kind of um, weird, but basically what it's saying is because of the work and person of Jesus, we have direct access to God, so we don't have to go to priests anymore. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a special building. We don't need a certain spiritual leader to be in the presence of God. We're priests, and we have access to God. 
a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and then a holy nation. Uh, the word holy in the Greek, it just means um, to be a people that are set apart. And so the community of Jesus is an alternative community. And we don't give into the culture's definition of things, but because of Jesus, most things are reoriented. People that offend you, forgive them. Foreigners, welcome them. Enemies, love them. Violence, denounce it. Money, give it away. Even as I was thinking about the way that we've been in, uh, socialized or enculturated um, around this idea of group culture, weak group culture, we actually don't have to give into that, but we can say we need each other. And so we're set apart our alternative. And then lastly, a people for his own um, possession or God's treasured possession. And the point here is that um, God actually delights or finds joy in his church like a husband does to his bride. God doesn't, God doesn't just tolerate you and I. We're not a, a mistake that, um, that um, God is stuck with because he cares about keeping his promises. But Peter is reminding us that we're God's treasured possessions. Even later, he goes on to say that um, he calls us beloved, right? He's not ashamed of us, not embarrassed to call us his people. And so 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who you are. A call to live into the reality, into the, the communal life, a community, a place to be fully known and fully loved. And so that's the, 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 the community side of things. What about this other word that we're talking through here, this idea of covenant. What is a covenant? And the Bible, as you kind of take in the whole, uh, the Bible would say that the, a covenant is a formal and self-giving promise of two parties to one another. A formal and self-giving promise of two parties to one another. I like how Timothy Keller describes a covenant. He says, a covenant is a stunning blend of both law and love. It is a relationship much more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract could create, yet one more enduring and binding than personal affection alone could make. I love that. More intimate and loving than a contract and more binding than a mere relationship. And pretty much culturally, the only way to understand this idea of covenant is through uh, the marriage relationships. So if you think about um, the vows, evaluate this idea of covenant through this. I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, in good times or tough times, as long as we both shall live. It's formal and self-giving and indefinite. And that's the covenant relationship, more loving than a contract, yet more binding than a mere relationship. And maybe you're thinking to yourself like, Russell, can't we come up to, with like a more up-to-date word than this idea uh, of covenant? And the answer is no, we can't. Just because we don't have a category for something culturally doesn't mean we should shy away from the beauty and uh, the depth that this word can actually give us. And, and, and a word to me that is so culturally necessary right now, it's gonna, it's gonna push on us, it's gonna challenge us because um, we live with friendships that are non-committal, right? We, we often are burnt out on people. We often trust our own self-sufficiencies. We, we often don't wanna put ourselves under the obligation of others. 
And, and for, for a lot of us, what we actually are realizing here is on, on one hand, we want to be a part of something purposeful and meaningful and um, life-giving. But on the other hand, we don't want to be bogged down by the responsibilities of it. And this, that's what this idea of covenant is beginning to push on. But covenant is not just about horizontal relationships uh, with, with, with you and I, for example, but actually God is a, a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God throughout scripture makes these covenant promises with individuals and with groups, with Noah, with Abraham, with, with David, with Israel. God is known for defining things and putting labels on relationship. Uh, one example I'll give you here is, is with, um, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and it's a really long narrative. I don't have time to explain all of it, um, but in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, go to the land that I will show you. And he goes on to say uh, eventually that he's going to make him the father of many nations. The problem is, is Abraham and his wife Sarah don't have any children and they're getting up there in age. They're in their 80s in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham has pretty much had enough. And here's what he says to God. Uh, uh, God says to him, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. AKA, what good are your promises, God, if I don't have a son? And throughout the narrative and, and, and throughout the Old Testament, the promise of God is, is I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That is the promise of God. And Abraham here is stuck wrestling with it over and over and over again and he he takes things into his own hands at, at times but in, in Genesis chapter 15 they're beginning to solidify um, the relationship here and and God is actually willing to submit not just relationally but in a bigger way and it continues in in verse 4 and behold the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir talking about Eliezer your very own son shall be your heir and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. And so there's a bond between God and Abraham. There's a connection. And what we're actually getting here is a relational covenant. But God is willing to go even further than that. I don't have time to read uh, verses 9 uh, through, through 20, but I'll kind of summarize what happens here. Abraham um, is still asking, God, how can I know that you're going to keep your promises? Like, how do I know that this is going to happen? I'm really old here. And, and God's like, okay, here, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to bring me a cow. <laughs> He's like, okay, this is kind of random. God says, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And you and I are like, what is happening in this story? That is so weird. But to Abraham, um, Abraham knows exactly what this meant. This would be equivalent um, to God saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go grab a lawyer, a pen, and a notary, and you and I are gonna draft up a binding arrangement. But here's what would happen with that cow. They'd bring the cow in, or an animal, or several animals, they would be cut open. They, the, the cow would be laid on its back and cut down its belly. I know it's, it's kind of uh, gruesome here, but it would be, uh, its legs would be folded out this is a blood covenant. Life must be given. Blood must be shed for this covenant uh, to be official. And again, Abraham would know full well what's happening here. An irrevocable contract 
was about to be uh, was about to take place. And next would be the walk of death. And so the, the, the covenant partners, the two of them, um, would meet facing each other. And as the bull and the blood was, uh, the, as the bull was cut open, the partners would literally begin to walk around the masses of blood in a figure eight through this cow. And then you would pronounce the, the uh, blessings and curses. And it would go something like this. May this happen to me. May I be cut into and may my blood be thrown everywhere if I break this covenant. And this is how you would sign uh, a contract back then. I was thinking about like imagining like a lease renewal. Uh, they send you the renewal and you're like, all right, come on over. You bring the cow and right before you like walk through it, you're like, all right, how about one more month free? Like one more month. And you're like, I'm ready to walk through. Um, anyway, Abraham gets it. God comes to Abraham and he's saying, I, I'm a God that keeps my promise, not in like loose ways, but in official ways. I'm like, I'm willing to do the DTR with you. God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. It's his character. He keeps his promises. And so if we take into account all of these things, this, this idea of community, this idea of covenant, putting them together, what does it mean to be a covenant community? And I just wanna say three things here uh, for us in particular. And the first is this, to be a community of commitment. And so we're actively working to put the group's needs ahead of the individuals. And this is so hard in, a, in, in the time and place in which we live in this individualistic society, but also in a society that relies so heavily on contracts. They, they create a framework for us to think about relationships, right? I have a doubt about you, and so the contract is over. And it, and it should be said, there's nothing, there's nothing really wrong with a contract. It's good for purchasing goods and services, but it shouldn't be used as an acceptable structure to make promises with um, a spouse, a, a child, or um, to God. And so what I want to do really quickly here is draw, draw the difference between a contract and a covenant. And what you can do as you read this is you can begin to um, think through what it looks like to commit to um, things that you're a part of. Um, to, what does it look like to commit to being a part of a church community? So a contract would say, um, it's business, right? What will it take? But a covenant is relational. It says whatever it takes. A contract is conditional. I'll do my part if you do yours. While a covenant is unconditional. I'll do my part whether you do yours or not. Uh, a contract uh, says compromise. I'll meet you halfway. But a covenant is about sacrifice. I'll go all the way. A uh, contract is temporary. Once all the conditions have been met, the contract is complete. But the covenant is permanent. I will do this as long as I live. A contract says uh, is uncertain. I'm, I'm not so sure about this, but a covenant says I trust and I will do my part. And so there's a huge difference, difference right? It's, it's relational. It's sacrificial. And if we're honest, we were like, well, actually, I want, I want to make contracts with people and I want other people to covenant to me, but that's not the way it works. That's not the way covenant community works works. It's a shared commitment. And as you do that, just think of the beauty here. As, as people have a covenant relationship with others, you have a shared life in the city. We're learning, we're growing, we're making mistakes, we're forgiving one another, and we're being driven deeper into relationship with others and with God. And this is actually how we learn to follow Jesus. It's on the go in, in the midst of these commitments. And so, what does it mean to be a covenant community? A community of commitment, but also a community that, that's attractive. 
And this is ironically enough something that Peter gets at in 1 Peter 2 here. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? He, he's framing up an alternative way of, of life, not to give in to the social pressures of the day, or his phrase is to abstain from the passions of the flesh, but to live a radically different, or uh, sometimes it's called the upside down way of Jesus, right? The, the way we said it before, people offend you, forgive them. Foreigners, welcome them. Uh, enemies, love them. Violence, renounce it. Money, give it away. It's a, a total re re into reorientation and alternative way of living and being. Uh, Miroslav Volf uh, comments on First Peter. He says this. He says, early Christians did not wish to impose itself or the kingdom of God on the world but to live in faithfulness to God and to the values of God's kingdom, inviting others to do the same. It had no desire to do for others what they did not want done for them. They had no covert totalitarian agenda. Rather, the community was to live an alternative way of life in the present social setting, transforming it as it could from within. In any case, the community did not seek to exert social or political pressure, but to give public witness to a new way of life, a new way of life, an alternative community, a community of attraction. So what then lastly does it mean to be a covenant community? It means to be a community under the lordship and leadership of Jesus. And this is what Peter is communicating in verses six through eight. He calls Jesus the cornerstone, the foundation on which the church is built. He is the head. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of reunion, local, and but also global. Jesus is the head of the church. And there are so many implications um, to that. But what would this inherently mean? And one thing I think that should be noted is that... Um, when, when you show up to a local church, you, you don't choose all the people in the church, right? And this has endlessly beautiful ramifications. If almost every circle that we're in, we choose who we are in community with, who we spend time with, who we hang out with after work, who we interact with on the street or at the gym or whatever it is. We don't choose our family. Um, but my point is the church may be one of the last places where we can come together, where we are totally different, but we are held together in unity by the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is the thing that we come together for. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. He's the head. And so as we're thinking about this idea of covenant community today, I hope in one sense that you're being pushed on, right? This idea of, of covenant is, is pushing on you and in, in, in asking you to evaluate in what, in, in what ways that you are highly individualistic or you're walking into community um, with expectations and you didn't even know it. And so hopefully today that's um, part of this journey that you're beginning um, to say, in what ways are the group's needs more important than, than, than my needs? And, and we're evaluating that in several spheres uh, all at the same time 
time, but also this is an invitation um, into life in community to ex explore, right? Not to sign on the dotted line, but to explore what life looks like in community. Our community groups are actually starting this week. Um, you can jump in a week or two late if you're just kind of um, thinking about it and or maybe you have questions, you wanna fill out that connection card and we'll follow up with you. Um, Will told you about our rhythms. We are gonna start on Zoom, but um, they're gonna be neighborhood-based and we're gonna be looking at multiplying these groups into the future. Everyone is welcome. Uh, two weeks out of the month, we're going to be studying scripture together. So you don't just have to listen to one person, but there, you know, there's um, going to be circles where we're talking about these things. One week a month, we're going to be uh, socializing, uh, eating food together, gathering together physically. And then one week a month, um, serving um, together in our neighborhoods. So downtown is meeting Monday nights. It's going to start on Zoom, 730 Mondays. And then Uptown is meeting um, Wednesday nights, um, also starting on Zoom. If you're in a different borough or that day, day of the week uh, doesn't work for you, don't worry. Join the one that works for you. And then, um, you know, we'll be hoping to multiply in the future um, closer to uh, where you are. Let's pray. And so, Father, I love you. And I, I, I know that it's like a lot of information um, coming at us so quickly. Um, but, but I hope the things that we've grasped is more about your character who you are, that, um, that you make promises, but that you keep promises. And the invitation for us is into life, into community with you, which inherently means life in community with other people. And I just pray for reunion right now as a, as a church, as a community, that we would be a people um, that are set apart in this way, that we are uh, an alternative group, that we are um, radically welcoming, but that we would first and foremost um, be about your son Jesus and be rooted and united in your son. And um, God, I just pray that this would have deep implications to the ways that um, we go to work uh, this week, that um, we talk to our friends, that we wouldn't go thinking about ourselves, or our own happiness, or our own rights first, but that we would go and we would think about the other before ourselves. Um, God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, there are links for everything that we talked about um, below. There's also a link below to give generously. If you call Reunion um, your home and you wanna give back to what God is doing in the city through our community, um, actually next week, we're gonna talk about this idea of generosity, uh, giving us a bigger picture of, of why we give, what the heartbeat for generosity for us is. If you're just checking us out for the first time or like a friend sent you this, like please feel no compulsion to give. We believe um, that everything that we have and everything that we are is a gift from God. And so we give back generously um, to love our neighbors and to fuel the mission of our church. And so you can do that at reunionnyc.com backslash give. And then lastly, let me send you with a blessing. And so receive this. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he give us honesty in evaluating our own individualistic nature. And may the Holy Spirit give us clarity and wisdom to know how and when and where to commit. And may we be sent out to live out the values of the kingdom of God. Amen.